Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, the fourth chapter. We have just finished the lessons of the messages to the seven churches of Asia Minor that Jesus picked out to give messages to. And we said that in chapter 1, verse 19, if you'll look at it, is the key to the book of Revelation. It says, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. We've already studied the things which John saw, and the things which are had to do with chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches. And by the way, as far as uh, history is concerned, the things which are are still in existence because we're still in the church age. But then it says, and the things which shall be hereafter. And if you'll notice chapter 4, verse 1, it says, after this, or after these things, or after the church age, it begins this way. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things, the things which must be hereafter. You have that same word, hereafter. Remember 119 said, the things which shall be hereafter. And here it says, I'll show thee the things which must be hereafter. So we're talking about future things. We're talking about things that are in the future of the church. And by the way, it's no uh, secret to know that as you study the book of Revelation, you do not have the word church anymore in the remainder of the book of Revelation. There is one verse of Scripture that says churches, but it's much like the word that Jesus said early concerning the churches, only He says in 22, the last chapter in the 16th verse, I, Jesus, have sent Mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. So at the end of the book, he reminds us that these, all of this is given to testify unto the churches. But as far as the actual happening of things, from chapter 4 on, you do not have the word church mentioned. So evidently the church has gone to heaven. And we're going to find out that there's much indication in this very first verse. Notice the door is open in heaven. This, this door open in the voice of God which calls, Come up hither. And John's presence in glory, John, the beloved apostle, his presence in glory in the Spirit, he was so caught up in the Spirit, clearly indicates symbolically the fulfillment of that which we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when it says that the church will be caught up or the saints will be caught up. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, but behold, I show you... Uh, no, that's the wrong one. That's in 1 Corinthians 15. There's two of them there. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of night, the sound of the trumpet. Here you have the sound of the trumpet, do you not? Uh, it says that, that we'll be changed and caught up to be, meet the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, 
the dead in Christ, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Now listen carefully. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus, the dead in Christ, will God bring with Him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent, the word means proceed or go before, them which are asleep, but he says the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ shall rise, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So it tells us all these things in that passage of Scripture. And this here that we're studying in this first verse is evidently the fulfillment of this being caught up in heaven. The fact that John was caught up at this point is another evidence that the church will not go through the tribulation. Because you don't find the mention of the church during the tribulation. People say the church is going through that great tribulation. But here, the fact that John is caught up and it's symbolical of the rapture of the church, then we know that it's not going to go through the tribulation or it would be mentioned during the tribulation period. You know, you have all kinds of people today talking about when the tribulation comes and that we're in the tribulation or we're about to face the tribulation. One thing's going to happen before that happens and that's uh, the dead in Christ will rise and the living believers, the Lord says He's going to take them up. And then there will be great tribulation, Jesus says, not as uh, such as has never been upon the earth. So notice all the symbolical things that you find here. I want you to notice. First of all, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice, here's a voice from heaven, which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me. A trumpet-like voice. Now, what was the trumpet used for? The trumpet was used to assemble God's people. Let me find the reference for you in the book of uh, Numbers chapter, 20, uh, chapter 10, verse 4. And in Israel of old, it says, And if they blow with, the, with one trumpet, then the princes which are the heads of thousands of Israel shall gather themselves unto thee. It would be a gathering together. It was used for several things. It was to sound a battle, battle alarm, or it was to sound a retreat, to withdraw, or it was to sound to assemble God's people together. That's why Paul says, If the trumpet have an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself to battle? And that's why we're to speak clearly and plainly. Because he says that if you do not understand what the trumpet sound is, you don't know what it means. That's why a song needs words, a message to it. That's why our preaching needs words, not not a foreign tongue. It needs plain, understandable words so that people will know what it's saying. And Paul used that. uh, There's another passage in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. We quoted 1 Thessalonians 4, but I want you to notice especially the word trumpet. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with a voice of the archangel and with a trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to notice verse 52. It says, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, or when the trumpet sounds. For the trumpet shall sound. See, Paul points it out in the Corinthians. 
So it's that trumpet-like voice that John heard. He says, I heard as it were. I heard a voice. Uh, the first voice that I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me. And that trumpet, the message was to gather together. And it's indicative and symbolical of all God's children being taken up. It says, come up hither. And he says, when you come up here, John, you're in heaven now in spirit. When you're up here, you're going to, I'm going to show you the things that will take place hereafter or after this church is gone. After these things. Hereafter. So it has reference to the things of the great tribulation. Now then, what, did, what else happened here? Not only was there a door open in heaven, there was a vision of the throne. It says uh, in verse 2, And immediately I was in the Spirit, he was caught up in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. So he's no longer upon the earth, as far as in being in the Spirit is concerned. Remember, these are visions. And this is John. Uh, it says in the first chapter that I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So all of this is a spiritual vision and knowledge of not only the things past, the things he had seen, but the things present during the church age and the things to come, the things which shall be hereafter. In a spiritual sense, he understood this that was being given to him. And he understood that the Lord was giving him all of these messages. And so he says, I was caught up in the Spirit, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in the sight like unto an emerald. This is so rich, I don't want to pass over it hurriedly. Notice first of all, he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. <clears throat> Here's two stones. This is the first and the last stone on the breastplate of the high priest in the Old Testament. And all those stones were representative of the children of Israel. There were twelve of them. But you have the first and the last one. If you turn, let me give you a reference. If I can, to the book of uh, Exodus chapter 28. I want to read verse 17 and verse 20. It says, And thou shalt set in it settings of stones. This is the breastplate of judgment that was on the high priest. And it says, Thou shalt set in it settings of stones, even four rows of stones. So there were four rows of three each, making the total of twelve. Three times four is twelve. And so there's. it says... Uh, Thou shalt set in it settings of stones, even four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardius, a topaz. So the very first one was a sardius, or sardine stone. And then the last, if you'll go down to verse 20, in the fourth row, a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. So the first and second stone. This represented, in the Old Testament, the sardius stone represented Reuben. It was after the names of the children of Israel. Reuben. And then the last one represented uh, Benjamin. These are symbolical. The sardine stone represents Christ's redemptive work in this blood red 
sardius or sardine stone. And then the brilliant stone, the jasper stone, represents his glory, the brilliant stone. And so we see two things that God has done, that he's glorious and he's also redemptive. Now then we know that God the Father in Christ reconciled the world unto himself. So God is redemptive as well as the Son. And and we know that He has committed all judgment to the Son. So what we see of God here, we see of the Son as well. He says, I and my Father are one. But basically, this is the throne of God. And later on when we find judgment coming, we know that God says in His Word that He's committed all His judgment unto the Son. You read in John chapter 5 over and over again that judgment was for the Son of God. So, here, he that sat, hold your place in Revelation 4. I want you to get this. There's so many wonderful things here. He that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. Now then, if you'll notice here that they're reversed from what they are in the Old Testament. The jasper stone here is first and the sardine is, is second or last. In the Old Testament, the sardine stone is first and the jasper is last. And by the way, these two stones representing Benjamin, Benjamin, which would be the jasper stone, is represented by Benjamin, the last in the Old Testament, but the first here, uh, is the son of the right hand. And Reuben is behold a son. That's the Sardis stone. They're meaningful. They represent, if you go back and study in the book of Genesis, their names had a meaning. And remember when Benjamin was born, the last son of, of uh, Jacob, or children of Israel. Jacob was named Israel. The last son was called the son of my right hand, or the right hand. And then Reuben, when he was born, says, Behold a son. So we find them named according to uh, the the order of the children of Israel, and yet these two, the first and the last, are the only ones that are chosen here to show that it includes the whole family. God could have named every one of the, the uh, sons here, or all of the stones, and let it represent all the sons. But we have so many representations. Remember, uh, the Bible says that He came and signified these things by his angel to his servant John, are signified means signified in the early part, in the introduction, the first chapter. Signified or signified, or so we find many things by signs or symbols. And we're going to find a great deal more here about signs and symbols. If you'll notice also in verse 3, it says, He that sat was to look upon like, like a jasper and a sardin stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. So he, you have a throne. Now, what is a throne for? It's for judgment. I want to give you two verses of Scripture. Psalm 103, verse 19. Psalm 103, and verse 19 says this, The Lord hath prepared His throne in the heavens. So it's in the heavens. And then Psalm 9, verse 7 says, But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared His throne for judgment. So it's in the heavens, and it's what? For judgment. You have those two references? The last one was Psalm 9, verse 7. So He's prepared His throne for judgment. Now then, if you hold your place in Revelation 4, verse 3, 
Notice, and there was a rainbow round about the throne. This throne was prepared in the heavens, and this throne was prepared for what? For judgment. And being prepared for judgment, why is there a rainbow round about the throne? Remember, this is God's covenant. Sign of This is symbolical of the covenant that God made with Noah. And what did God tell Noah when he set the bow in the, in the sky, the rainbow? He said that I will not again flood the earth anymore. I will not judge the earth with a flood of waters. I, I, though my throne is a throne of judgment here, I'm not going to judge without remembering my covenant. So, God has made a covenant with you and I through the blood of Christ. And that covenant is based upon the forgiveness of sins through Christ Jesus, a blood covenant. And so that means that God is not going to judge us. He will, it's a promise that God will not judge us again, for that has already been judged. And that rainbow around about the throne very precious to us. It means that God is not going to judge us because He's already judged us in the person of Christ. It means He's going to remember His covenant. And notice it says, In sight like unto an emerald, emerald green. Think of this for a moment. The color. Think of the color that you have. If you'll think of the pleasantness of the color of green. Why is it that there's so much green in the world? It's pleasant to our eyes. It's, it's comfortable. It's, it's uh, easy to look upon. And it's, it's just calming. It calms our souls. We have the Scripture says, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Right? He leadeth me beside the still waters. The peaceful, comfort, serene, uh, wonderful, uh, peaceful atmosphere. Of green. And so it means that in judgment, he will remember mercy. And evidently, we're going to, at some point in time, face the judgment seat of Christ. And so if you look at this verse in the full, what do you find? He that sat was to look upon like a jasper, the glorious brilliance of God, and a sardine stone, the redemptive work of Christ. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, remembering his covenant relationship and that he will not judge again that which has already been judged and then in sight round about throne in sight like unto an emerald and that means that in judgment he will remember mercy now then look in verse 4 it says and round about the throne were four and twenty seats and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting now notice they were clothed in white raiment there's twenty four elders They were clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. There's so much that needs to be said about these. They were clothed in white raiment, signifying their purity. White raiment or white linen is the righteousness of the saints. And then the the fact that they had on their heads crowns of gold signifies their purity responsibility and their the status. They're they're there crowned. Angels are not crowned, but Christians have a crown promised them. So these twenty four elders, and I'll give you proof in so many different directions, I want you to follow this in a moment. These twenty four elders are symbolical of all the priestly 
holy family of God of the Old and the New Testament. Now, let me start out by giving you a verse of Scripture in Revelation 21, verses 12 and 14. Revelation 21, verse 12. In this holy city later on, it's coming down this new Jerusalem from God out of heaven. Verse 12 says, well, let's read verse 11 because it will show us that jasper stone, stone. And this will have to do with our lesson as well. Look at 21 verse 11. You have Revelation 21 verse 11. Having the glory of God and her light was likened to a stone most precious, precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now then, this is not the ordinary jasper stone, and I don't believe it was back there in the text where we're studying. But possibly a diamond, or maybe, uh, some say maybe an opal. But it's, it was well known for brilliance, clear as crystal. So it's not the ordinary low cost or cheap, what we call a jasper stone. But it represented something far greater. Now verse 12, this is a verse I want you to get. And it had a wall great and high and had twelve gates and the gates at the gates twelve angels and the names written thereon which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. So you have one twelve. But you have another twelve. Look at verse 14. Well, let's go and read verse 13 and 14. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now you have twelve and twelve, which is twenty-four. There are twenty-four elders. You have twelve that represent the Old Testament. Governmental authority and children of Israel. Twelve. The names of the twelve tribes of Israel. That was the first reference. Remember verse twelve. Twenty-one verse twelve. What do you have? The names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Verse fourteen says... And in them, the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, the apostolic church. The New Testament church is represented by the foundation of it, which are the apostles. So you put these twenty-four together. And they represent the Old and the New Testament saints, the whole priestly family of God. Now we can give you much more proof of this. I want you to... uh, Follow with me. And if you'll follow your Bible, these are very important things. And by the way, uh, I could preach on this and just leave it. But I could go ahead and teach it to you, and then you'll know it. And if you'll look at your Bible and follow me, when you get through, you'll know where you've been and what it's all about. Now, if you'll look at First Chronicles chapter 24. 1 Chronicles chapter 24. I want to read something for you. Verse 4 says, and we won't read all of it, but about halfway down it says, Among the sons of Eliezer, now notice these numbers, there were 16 chief men of the house of their fathers and 8 among the sons of Ithamar. So 16 and 8 is what? 24. And I'm just giving you highlights. You can study all of this, but it's, it's, it's so lengthy it would take the rest of our lesson to study it. But I'll give you the main points. I want you to notice verse 10 says, The seventh, and it's naming these elders of Israel. The seventh to Hakaz, the eighth to Abijah, 
You see that says to the eighth to Abijah. Abijah. Now if you hold your place there. And let me read for you in Luke chapter 1. And it's talking about this same priesthood that was in existence in the days of Jesus. And it says in verse 5, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, listen, of the course of Abiah, or Abijah. There were still these priests that David set up that were still functioning and still going on as they were told to do and and taught to do, even in the days of Zacharias, who was the father of who? John the Baptist, right? And so he was serving uh, in his priestly function, and I could go on and read more and more of this short passage in the Gospel of Luke, but that gives you enough to show that this priestly office was in order in in, uh, the days of Jesus. Now then, if you still have your place in 1 Chronicles, and I'm just trying to hit the highlights of it because you can go back in depth and study it, but I want you to look at verse 18. The 3 and 20th, you have 1 Chronicles 24, verse 18. The 3 and 20th to Delilah, the 4 and 20th to Messiah. So you have the 4 and 20th or 24. That is the, the last of these elders that are named. 1 Chronicles 24, verse 18. So you'll see that in the Old Testament, there were 24 elders. David divided the priests into 24 courses. And each course to serve for two weeks at a time. And that's why Zechariah was serving his time in the priestly office when all of this happened in the book of Luke, chapter 1. And... Of course, uh, Elizabeth conceived and later on, according to God's promise, and, and they had a son. His name was John. They named him John the Baptist because God had told him the name of John the Baptist. But you have each course to serve for two weeks at a time and in the temple that Solomon was to build. Now, these 24 elders appointed by David to represent the entire Levitical priesthood Because the priests were many thousands in number. And they could not all come together at one time. But when these 24 elders met together in the temple precincts in Jerusalem, the center of their worship, the entire or the whole priestly family or house was represented by these 24 These 24 elders represented the whole of the priestly family that was scattered all over the country. So, those 24 elders in the New Testament that we've been studying in the book of Revelation represent the whole priestly family. Now, who are the priestly family of God? All of God's people. We know that God had appointed Israel to be a priestly family. You can go back and study... Uh, all the uh, writings to Moses and, and Aaron and uh, the uh, Levitical priesthood and find that they were a priestly family in the Old Testament. Well, you say, what about the New Testament priestly family? Look in First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. I want to read for you. 
It's just a little bit behind that revelation there. And I want to read this. I'll pick up with verse 1 so you'll get the whole story. It says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice, this is what we're to lay aside as God's children, 1 Peter 2, verse 2, and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If so be that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. You have it, 1 Peter 2, verse 5 now. Ye also, Peter says, ye also as lively stones, now what are you? As believers, are built up a spiritual house, and then he says, and holy priesthood. You believers, you're living stones in this priestly house, and holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. You say, how do we know that's believers? Just read on down. Follow me down. Wherefore also it is contained in Zion, in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. This, this chief cornerstone is Jesus, and we have other Scriptures to show you that. Verse 7 says, Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. The believer is in view here. The believer is the living stone. The believer is built up a spiritual house, verse 5. The believer is in holy priesthood, verse 5. The believer is spoken of in verse 7. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. You have verse 7. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. To the disobedient, Christ was rejected. But the one that they refused is made the head of the corner. Now, what is he? And a stone of stumbling to them, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Now, verse 9. But ye, you believers, but ye are a chosen generation. <clears throat> now, look at this. A royal priesthood. Who is it? Who's a royal priesthood? All believers are a royal priesthood. All believers are a royal priesthood. An holy nation. A peculiar people. That ye should show forth the praises, the word means virtues as well, of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So what are we saying then? That we have evidence in the Old Testament that the priestly family was represented by 24 elders. When we get to the New Testament, that represented the whole priestly family of the Old Testament. And then we divided that up in the New Testament and showed you in Revelation 21 where the 12, 12 tribes of Israel, that would be 12, and the 12 apostles of the Lamb make up that heavenly city. And we showed you how there's the 24 that is representative of the priesthood. Then we showed you in 1 Peter chapter 2 how that they, that believers are represented as New Testament priests. So that you and I, since the day Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, and when that veil in the temple was rent in twain from, in the midst from the top to the bottom, it opened up a way into the presence of God for not just the high priest that came in only once a year in the Old Testament, 
But for every believer to come into God's presence, His presence was seen inside the Holy of Holies, and for every believer to enter in by faith in Christ and His finished work. So every believer. So that's why you and I can, any day, uh, any time of the day, or any day of the year, even tonight in the middle of the night, we can go into God's very presence in prayer through Christ, opening the way for us into God's very presence. And we can come as our own, uh, in our own priestly right. We don't have to have that one of the Old Testament. You know that priest, that high priest, on he could only enter in once a year. And that on the Day of Atonement. And he had to take the blood of that uh, brazen altar outside the, the tabernacle first and then the temple. And he had to bring it in and go behind the veil and sprinkle the blood upon the uh, Ark of the Covenant, upon the mercy seat, and make atonement thus, as God had prescribed, for all the sins of all the children of Israel. And he could only do that once a year, and it says, and not without blood. And thus he would atone for the sins of the children of Israel for a year at a time. Now then, you and I, Christ has already gone in. He's already made atonement for us. He sprinkled His blood upon the altar in heaven. And I can show you that in Hebrews chapter 9. But anyway, that has already been done. And now He's telling you and I that we don't have to wait for any human being to go in the God's presence for us because He's opened the way. That veil in the temple was rent in the midst from the top to the bottom showing that God had rent that veil. And they say it was uh, 60 feet high and about four inches thick, so that if you tied two yoke of oxen pulling either direction, in the opposite direction, they could not have rent that veil. We know it was divinely rent, that God did it when Jesus died on the cross. The Bible says when He died that the veil in the temple was rent in the midst, from the top to the bottom. And all of this is symbolical of what it means to you and I, that the death of Christ. It means a lot. It means so much that we're only touching on it tonight. We've talked about the sardine stone, redemption by blood. We've talked about the jasper, the dazzling white, beautiful, clear as crystal brilliance of God. We've talked about the rainbow round about the throne, that God is not going to judge us again for something He's already judged in Christ. John chapter 5, verse 24, I told somebody to memorize it. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life, so we're exempt from judgment through what Jesus has done for us. My, I'll tell you, Christians have a wonderful standing in grace. I think, we're, I think we live far below our standing. Have you ever seen people live below their standing? They browbeat themselves and they put themselves down when God says, I'm going to lift you up and I'm giving you a position. The Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians that He's raised us up and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. It doesn't say He's going to do that. It says He's already done that. You read Ephesians chapter 2. That He's raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. That, that's where we are. That's our position now. Our position is not to be trampled down and to be a doormat for folks. 
It doesn't mean we should be so proud that we cannot live with folks, but it does mean we can think of ourselves as redeemed by the blood of Christ and that we're, we have many blessings that, that we, we, try, we sometimes live below those blessings. I'll tell you, I'm happy today. And I'm thankful today. And I know what God's Word teaches, that it teaches that we have a great standing. It says, this grace that saved you, this grace wherein you stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You read Romans chapter 5, the first five verses. Wonderful things here. Now then, the 24 elders. 24 seats or thrones. Look at verse 4. You have Revelation 4 verse 4. Round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting. Now these 24 elders represented of all the redeemed of the Old and New Testament. And where were they? They were sitting on thrones that the Lord had prepared for them. And they were clothed in white raiment. That means they were righteous before God. This uh, symbolizes the believer's purity before God. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. Representing their status, their position on that throne. You remember we studied the crowns earlier? How many different crowns that there is waiting for the believer? When we talked about crowns in the studies of uh, the church, letters to the churches. Incorruptible crown. Crown of glory. Crown of rejoicing. And all these crowns, there are five major crowns. And so, here we know that these that wear crowns, angels are not crowned. Uh, living creatures are not crowned. We're going to get into some living creatures in a little bit in our study here. There are so many things. And, uh, you know, I would not... If I were to pass over this lightly, I wouldn't give you a thorough lesson of the book of Revelation. So, let's go on and see. take verse 5 now uh, quickly, if you will. It says, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. <clears throat> and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now notice that. <clears throat> From this throne, lightnings and thunderings and voices. Now God sent lightnings. God thundered at Sinai. By the way, this describes not a throne of grace, but a throne of judgment. There are thunderings and lightnings and warnings of a coming storm. God thundered at Sinai when He gave the law. And He thundered again to judge those that had broken His law. I want you to look in Exodus 19, verse 16. Exodus 19 and verse 16. Notice what it says here. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mountain and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was altogether on smoke. Remember the fire? It speaks of. Because the Lord descended 
uh, upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long, and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by voice, and the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called up to the top of the mount, called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. In chapter 20, verse 18 and 19, it says, And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. Why? They couldn't stand before this judgmental God. And then it says, And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us. They said, Moses, you talk to us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. So, over here in the book of Revelation, when you're studying of the thunderings and lightnings and all of this, it's telling you that that there is a judgment coming upon the earth. And God's throne is a throne of judgment, even though for you and I it's a throne of grace. Even though the rainbow round about the throne symbolizes His mercy and His covenant, yet for those that are upon the earth... That's, this judgment is about to be poured out. We're talking about in the future of this time after the church is gone. Keep it in the chronological order. We're speaking now from Revelation 4 on of things that are after the church is gone and after the saints are resurrected. We're speaking of a great tribulation. And there's going to be thunderings and lightnings and, and voices and judgments. And you're going to see we'll come across this statement in several passages of Scripture before we get to the end of the book. And you'll see again and again the thunderings and the lightnings representing the judgment that is coming. If you want to follow your references, you can find about three or four definite places to pick them out. Probably right here connected with this one verse. 8, 5, 11, 19. That's a couple of them. And on and on. There's more. But uh, what, what I want you to see is that there's judgment coming. And it says, uh, which are the seven, uh, seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. The fullness of God's... Seven speaks of the full number or perfection or completion. So it's the fullness of all the uh, manifold or the uh, fullness of God's Spirit represented. It doesn't mean there are seven spirits. It says the seven spirits, but it's the sevenfold plenitude of the Spirit of God. And you'll find different things attached to that uh, meaning uh, in the Bible. And possibly we can give you that at some time. The sevenfoldness of that of the Holy Spirit. So look at verse six now. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. You know, there's a brazen sea or a sea in Solomon's temple. And this is a sea of glass like unto crystal. And before the temple, there was a brazen laver where the priests would wash themselves, priests would wash themselves before entering into the, the place where they would uh, present the things in the in the tabernacle, and then later on the temple that uh, Solomon made. And here it seems that this 
sea is a sea of glass. It's as if it were uh, a labor to wash in, but it's solidified. Now, you know, when we get to heaven, we won't need to wash ourselves anymore in that uh, labor of cleansing. We'll be standing upon it and standing upon the promises of it. We won't have to wash ourselves in it anymore. Now, uh, in the Old Testament, the priest would wash himself before entering in to put the bread on the table or tend to the seven-branched candlestick or to do his work inside the, inside the tabernacle. You don't do that anymore. And furthermore, when we get to heaven, you and I will not even need to symbolically wash our sins away. Remember, Jesus washed the disciples' feet and Peter says, well, Lord, don't wash me because uh, I'm not worthy of that. And, and Jesus said, uh, you know, unless I wash you, Peter, wash your feet, I'll have no part with you. And so Peter says, well, not my feet only, but my hands and my head and everything. And Jesus said, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet because he's clean every whit. In other words, we're cleansed and we're saved by the blood of Christ. We're already redeemed. We're fully cleansed. But we do, as people walking in this life, become contaminated day by day. And your feet or your walk is symbolical of that contamination in this world. And we need daily cleansing there. And so when, uh, when uh, Jesus laid aside His garment, girded Himself with a towel and began to wash the disciples' feet, He knew that they were needing this daily cleansing. By the way, let me say something else there. Jesus showed us that there was a spiritual meaning to all of that and not a literal meaning because He says, you do not know what I do now, but you shall know hereafter. Now then, if it was a foot washing ordinance, they knew what He was doing, right? But He says, you do not know what I'm doing now, but you'll understand hereafter I'm talking about a cleansing that people need daily because uh, that, that's what we do need, isn't it? So, there's a lot to be studied about that. But uh, let's go on with this. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass. So, it was a solidified uh, sea, likened to crystal. And in the midst of the throne, round about the throne, were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Now then, you get an introduction here. Oh, I won't have time. Our time is gone. We'll pick up with verse 5 in our next lesson. And I'll talk about these... Four beasts, or the living creatures, as they are called. And there's a difference between these beasts here and the ones you find over in Revelation 13 that are wicked beasts and mean beasts. But you'll find that these are not beasts in a beastly or evil sort of way, but they're really living creatures 